You're listening to The Reopening, a podcast that asks, how will America work through the COVID-19 pandemic? How will we innovate? And how will it change our global economy? Each week, we invite top business leaders to share their insights on the road to economic revival here at home and around the world. U.S. Representative Seth Moulton, a Democrat who represents Massachusetts' 6th Congressional District, joins the podcast this week. Congressman Moulton is a member of the House Armed Services Committee and the House Budget Committee. A former Marine Corps officer, Mr. Moulton has served this district since 2015 and offers his perspective on the health, economic, and security challenges we face. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Scott Miller. And this is The Reopening. Congressman Seth Moulton, Democrat of Massachusetts, thank you so much for joining us today. You are our first elected official. First, can I ask you to tell our listeners what part of Massachusetts do you represent? So I represent the northeast corner of the state, everything from a couple of towns north of Boston to the New Hampshire border and from the coast uh, west to towns like uh, Bill Ricca and Bedford. It's a wonderfully economically diverse part of the district. We have everything from small farms to uh, the latest in biotech, high tech, uh, defense tech, uh, cities and small towns. It is not a place of a lot of uh, highways and strip malls and chain restaurants. It's a place of small towns with real character and uh, places with a lot of small businesses that we want to preserve. Yeah, and that that's why I wanted you to describe it a little bit because your your district's really a slice of America. I mean, can you tell us how your constituents have been affected so far by COVID and you know, what's your expectation for the coming months and how how you're going to come out on the other side of it? Well, we've been hit hard. Uh, there are a lot of people who have lost their lives even as the state has in general had a, a fairly exemplary response and our trends are all in the right direction now even as Many other states are headed in the wrong direction. But the fact of the matter is that big numbers aside, trends aside, people have lost their lives to this virus. It's particularly hit communities of color, and we saw that very early on. I remember a hospital leader back in March saying, I don't know what it is, but it just seems like people of color are getting hit harder with this. I think it's pretty apparent now that communities that just have poorer access to healthcare don't have the ability to fight this off as well. This is a, a virus that we have to fight with our immune systems. That's all we've got because we don't have uh, a vaccine or, or really effective treatments yet. Uh, it certainly hit the cities harder and it's hit those workers who, who are on the job. You know, so many people in the so-called expendable class are now the essential workers. We talk a lot about nurses and doctors. How about those hospital orderlies that literally have to clean up the mess? I mean, people who are really on the front lines of this fight, bus, plane, train cleaners, grocery store workers, you know, they're getting hit hard too. Yeah, it's the truck drivers and the the people who have really been essential to keeping the rest of us with food in our refrigerator and able able to to do our job to they're supporting the services that we use every day so but they're they're not often heard from no i've never thought of grocery store workers as heroes and yet yeah. the fact that they show up to work every single day is heroic in the face of this virus and how many people they have to interact with every single day. And, you know, every time I'm in the grocery store now, I'm, I'm thanking all the workers even more than I normally do because, you know, they're the ones who are in there every day exposing themselves. 
I know the first grocery store worker who died in my district was a wonderful woman named Vitalina Williams. Uh, truly amazing story to read about uh, her life and her loving marriage and everything. And, um, in response to her death, I asked the governor for emergency personnel designation to designate grocery store workers as emergency personnel so that they could get priority access to testing and PPE. And, and I'm proud to say that the governor, uh, who's from a different party than myself, uh, did so within 24 hours. Well, that's that's great response. Well, great initiative on your part. Great response by the governor. But you know, in a, in the United States, we have a federal system, and there's lots of different levels of government with different responsibilities and different powers. How has that coordination been going? You, you obviously, uh, I think the entire Massachusetts delegation in the in the Congress is Democratic. You have a Republican governor, Republican president. So how, how's the how's the working relationships? How have they been over time? So at the state and local level, it's been incredibly bipartisan. My team, including my a specific coronavirus task force, has been in regular communication with the governor's coronavirus task force, sometimes on a daily basis or multiple times a day, especially as this was heating up. We've gotten quick responses on things like the story that I just shared. Look, I've got some criticisms of Governor Baker. I haven't been shy about sharing them. Of course, I'm someone who's not afraid to criticize my own party too, but because we have a strong working relationship, Massachusetts has responded well to this crisis. And sadly, that's not the case across the country. You mentioned the unique kind of small town character and the, the distinctiveness of the villages and, and towns and, and places in your district. Small business has been hard hit by uh, both the, the virus itself and the public health crisis, but also the many of the uh, shutdowns that proceeded from it and the, the economic downturn, particularly exposed small business. What have you seen in your district and, and how's that going to play out as they reopen and we get back on our feet? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, small businesses have been hit hard and they're the lifeblood of our economy. They're also the lifeblood of so many of our communities. That's certainly the case in, in my district. And it's sad to walk down the street and see so many storefronts shuttered so many people out of work and so many families that have owned these businesses sometimes for generations and fought to always keep them alive and thriving and contributing to our communities you know really suffering and wondering whether their businesses will ever be able to reopen so congress came in and and tried to help we came in big and heavy and quick uh, we got some of the numbers wrong uh, we, uh, you know, perhaps uh, gave a little bit too much in unemployment, encouraging some people not to come back to work and a few things like that. But the initial response was good. And a lot of small businesses were eager to take advantage of that. There were some real problems in the administration of the aid, though. So Congress got the aid passed in a bipartisan manner, I would add. The president signed it, but then his administration is responsible for distributing that aid. And that's been much more of a hodgepodge. Some businesses have gotten checked right away. Some businesses, a couple months later, are still waiting on those loans to come through. Yeah, given the scale and the immediacy of it, the attempting to implement a brand new program, we shouldn't be surprised looking back that it was rough. But, you know, a lot of small businesses aren't accustomed to to lines of credit and those kinds of things. They're operating on cash flow. They're operating with, you know, with, with sort of family employees. There's some special problems there that are actually kind of hard for our federal government to address. What do you think we should be doing going forward? Well, that's right, because big chain stores have access to all sorts of financing. I mean, they can call yeah. up their banker on Wall Street and figure out how to bridge this crisis. And that's not the case for the average uh, small independent restaurant owner or shop owner. 
And so there are a couple of things we have to do. First of all, I mean, look, you can't find a politician anywhere who says that he or she favors big businesses over small. Right. Right. Yeah. And yet that's, that's what our policy looks like, right? I mean, did you pay any taxes last year? Just personally? I did, yes, actually. You did? I did too. So I, Me I too. <laughs> I remember it quite well. <laughs> I bet all three of us paid taxes and yet Amazon did not. So think about that. All three of us, or even just one of us individually paid more taxes than all of Amazon, uh, which is profiting off this crisis because some things that used to go to a small local store for, now everyone's just going to Amazon. So our policy is set up to favor big business but we're trying to help small businesses. We have to make some fundamental changes in how we think about our economic policy in this, in this country, unless we just decide, nope, we want everything to be a big box, you know, nameless chain. If we want our small towns to thrive with small family owned businesses, uh, then, then we've got to change our policy and make sure that they're getting help. We also just have to have more aid. I mean, the initial tranche of aid was great but it's not enough. I saw some numbers recently. This was more focused on relief to local governments rather than just small businesses. But some estimates said, have said that the hit is about $1.3 trillion and we've delivered about $200 billion in aid. So in other words, we need about six times as much as we've already done. And the point that I made as vice chair of the budget committee in a recent hearing, I said, look, nobody looks back at the Great Depression and says, you know, the problem was that the federal government did too much or acted too quickly. Yeah. Right. So it's a time to go hard, go big, be aggressive. Uh, I'd, I'd rather overestimate how much people need an unemployment than underestimate. But at the same time, we've got to have a bipartisan commitment coming out of this that we're going to pay these bills back and that we're right. not going to continue on this path of enormous widening deficits every single year because otherwise we're just immorally handling, handing that bill to our kids. So you, you believe that bipartisanship is possible going forward because you've seen it at the state and local level and you've seen it in Congress as well. Well, I've seen it to a limited extent in, in Congress, but we certainly, you know, in, packet, in, in passing some of these initial aid packages, we did see bipartisan compromise and, and even cooperation. I've seen it a lot at the state and local level. I mean, I have a lot of rep, uh, Republicans that I represent and I always remind everyone at my town halls, I, ho I hold a lot of town halls, and I always remind them that I'm your representative, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, an independent, whether you voted for me or you voted for someone else, or you didn't vote at all. I'm your representative. I work for you. And that's the attitude that I think we all should take. My district voted for me as their congressional representative. I'm a Democrat. And in the same election, it voted by 13 points for our Republican governor. So there are a lot of people in my district that I represent who are not afraid to vote for the person over the party. But I'm afraid that atmosphere that we're fortunate to have in the 6th District of Massachusetts is not the atmosphere that I see in Washington today. Is there a way to set some of those habits of cooperation now in terms of what's happening in the House? Well, one of the things we're certainly going to try to do just the next few days is work in a bipartisan manner to pass the NDAA, the National Defense Bill. Mm -hmm. And that's incredibly important for our troops out there on the front lines. You know, a lot of people aren't talking about national security because we're all focused on fighting this virus here at home. And yet it's a global pandemic. So this is a time when 
we should be talking about this a lot, right? And I think that in working on the defense bill in the House, it's an opportunity for us to show some bipartisan leadership, leaving these political divisions at the water's edge, as we always used to say, and doing the right thing for our troops and our country over the politics of the moment. Does the use of the military and our foreign, our foreign policy change, in your view, um, given what we're dealing with with the pandemic and, and moving forward out of it? Which is a global problem you know, yeah. in, in and of itself. That's right. It's a, it's a global problem. It's uh, hitting our enemies as well as our allies. But there's no question that budgets are going to be tighter across the board. I think that's one of the most obvious effects here. Uh, we do have to pay back these bills. And the idea that the defense budget can keep growing at the pace at which it's grown for the last several years is probably unrealistic. So what does that mean? It means that we have even less room for the parochial interests, or uh, as Senator McCain put it, the military industrial congressional complex when it comes to defense spending. You know, it's not just about, well, we should throw in a few more F-35s because that's a few more parts made in my district. No. We've got to be aggressively cutting costs, cutting fat, cutting old systems to make room for the new in order to keep up with China and Russia and emerging threats around the globe. You know, it's a great point with you being on both armed services at the budget committee. Uh, you're one of the few people who can make it this cogently. But, you know, we were running fairly large deficits at full employment, peak economic growth, sort of before the pandemic. And now we, we have much lower economic growth, much fewer, many fewer revenues coming into governments at all levels. And then we increase spending by about $3 trillion. This can't go on forever. At least I, I don't think it can. No, it can't. And so we're going to be looking for cuts across the board. And, and that's a risk for our national security unless we aggressively modernize. Uh, that's what China and Russia are doing. You know, China's not trying to compete with us by building 20 aircraft carriers so they have a few more than us. They're just building missiles to defeat our aircraft carriers. And guess what? Those missiles are a lot cheaper. In fact, you can buy about 1,250 anti-carrier missiles for the price of one aircraft carrier. So China is thinking about this in a very smart way, not just in terms of their security, but in terms of their budget. And we've got to do the same. What else do we need to be thinking about in terms of defense going forward? Well, we've got to think about how we defend ourselves from pandemics. Now, we know scientifically that this pandemic originated in China, but was not caused by the Chinese government. It could have been caused um, in part by negligence. We don't know that for sure. Uh, but the point is that something like this could be caused by a government in the future, or it could emerge from any country in the world and infect us all and put all of our lives at risk. So we've got to think about this, not just as a medical problem or as a healthcare problem, but as a national security problem. And that has implications well beyond the traditional realm of national security. I mean, it has implications for our economic security. Why are all our medical supplies made in China? I mean, that might make sense from a free trade perspective. I know free trade is not very popular in Congress these days. Uh, I'm someone who believes in basic economics and believes there's a role for free trade as long as it's fair trade. But we also have to put that national security piece into the equation. And it may be marginally cheaper to make all our medical devices in China. But if that leaves us high and dry in the face of a pandemic like this, because we're counting on a foreign supplier for basic medical needs, then that's a real problem. And we've got to rethink those supply chains. 
Yeah, this is, you know, it's, it's funny because we evaluate risks differently and we evaluate exposure differently. It used to be that distributed supply chains were seen to be an advantage because we were trying to protect against the hurricane or the flood or, you know, so the natural disaster that occurred in one place. And now all of a sudden we need resilience when the natural disaster is everywhere. It's well, I think, Scott, the point is that there's got to be a balance. Yeah. And I'm not saying that we should never manufacture anything in China again. I mean, that would go against the basic principles of not only distributed man manufacturing, but basic economics and the advantages of the free trade and all that. But we do need to make sure that we have some capability here at home. I'll give you another example. I remember this from uh, when I went to business school you know, several years ago, back in 2011 or whatever, my professor pointed out that if Southeast Asia cut off their supply of flat screen TVs, flat screen monitors, anything flat screen, you probably are all surrounded by several of them at this moment, right? We don't have the capability to build them here in America. Right. Now that doesn't mean we don't have the technical knowledge or we couldn't you know, build the manufacturing capacity. But if you just said tomorrow, America, you've got to start producing flat screens, we wouldn't be able to do it. And that, that is a real concern for our national security. You have a lot of really bummed out people with no flat screen TVs to watch. Well, there are bigger, bigger issues than that, I think. <laughs> but I think there are bigger issues than that, Andrew. Exactly. Yeah. But that would be important. Well, speaking of big issues, though, what do you think the biggest foreign policy challenge faces the United States is? The rise of China. I mean, look, you know, if you look at our national security doctrine, the most immediate threat is Russia. They have a massive nuclear arsenal mm -hmm. that is aimed at us. They've been remarkably successful at poking holes and the fundamentals of our democracy by interfering in our elections. That's the most immediate threat. But I'm a member of the bipartisan Future of Defense Task Force. It's co-chaired by myself and Jim Banks, a Navy veteran from Indiana who's a Republican. And you know, sometimes we joke that we might as well call this the China Task Force, because when we look not to next year, but 20 or 30 years out, it's all about China, the rise of China and the clear threat that they pose to both our economic and our national security. Are we too hyper-focused on China? Are we missing something? Well, of course, there always has to be a balance. I mean, I think we ignore Russia uh, to our peril. They're, they're putting bounties on American troops right now in Afghanistan. Uh, their nuclear arsenal is the biggest in the world. They are undermining our democracy through social media and trying to tamper in our election as we speak. It's not a question as to whether they'll be involved in the 2020 election. They already are. So they're an immediate threat. We face the ongoing threat of terrorism and there are emerging threats around mm -hmm. the globe. But I think we take our eye off China to our peril in the long run. And so we have to have a balanced national defense without question. But I don't think we're investing enough in the threat that China poses. What's the issue that we're all not talking about that needs to be talked about? biotech and how important it is that we win the biotech race. I'm so proud to be from Massachusetts. We are the biotech leader of the planet right now, but the competition isn't from Silicon Valley as it was when the tech boom, you know, played out. The competition is from Beijing. They want to win this race. And I think what we don't appreciate are the consequences of losing this race to China. We won the tech revolution. Right. And that means that American computers, operating systems, software, everything tech, we've dominated this. We've done, no one ever, we never worried about uh, people going and buying transistors from the Soviet Union. We knew 
we were ahead. We knew we won that race. We knew that it was much easier to get allies to buy our stuff than our Cold War competitors. The next big revolution is not the tech revolution, but the biotech revolution. And it's not just about medicines. It's about things like our national security, because we will use, literally use biotechnology to build weapons, to build defense systems. Mm -hmm. And if we lose this race to China, and every time you want something biotech manufactured, the world leader is in China, and all the economies of scale go to China, then we're not only going to have a big healthcare problem, but big economic problem. We're going to have a massive national security problem on our hands as well. China knows this, and they're investing a lot of Chinese Communist Party government money in winning the biotech race. We're not doing that. Our private sector is leading the way, and the American private sector is the best in the world. But China is putting every ounce of government money and private money into winning this race, and we've got to have more government investment to do the same. Is it your view that we're losing now or that if we don't ramp up investment, we're going to be losing? We're still number one, but China is catching up very quickly. And at some point, those, those lines will cross and China will be ahead of us. And I think that that point is coming sooner than we'd like to think. Well, and, and comparing it to tech development of 50, 40 years ago, there was a lot more government investment on the demand side that helped to create that victory in technology. So, right. Most of the innovation still came from the private sector. Yes. Oh, yeah. Government investment was a huge part of driving it. And that's what China is doing. It's what we did to win uh, not just the tech revolution, but fundamentally the entire Cold War. Yes. And it's what we need to do here as well. And I think that's the, to answer your question, that's the piece that we're missing the most. But it's important to remember that not only is this an economic issue, a health issue, a national security issue, it's also fundamentally a values issue. Because the ongoing conflict with China is going to be different than the Cold War with the Soviet Union. But at its core, it is about a system of government. It's yes. about the values that we have for freedom and liberty, for self-governance and democracy. And losing a race like the biotech race is not just going to have consequences for biotech, or even, as I say, for national security. It's going to have consequences for the freedom of humanity over the coming decades. In terms of economics, I gather you believe the battle with China is really an economic competition and not a military competition. Can you expand a little bit more on that beyond biotech and some of the other categories? Andrew, I believe it's both. Oh, you believe it's both. My, my argument is that biotech, which we've never thought about as a realm of national security, will increasingly be a realm of national security. I mean, when we first started making transistors, you know, we probably thought of them more as ways to miniaturize radios than as ways to win the Cold War. And yet that's how we won the Cold War with technology like that. And not to beat this dead horse to death with the Cold War analogies, but if you think about it, our, our victory in the Cold War had as much to do with economic success as it did with military success. I believe the competition with China is the same. It's just going to inhabit new realms that we haven't thought of as national security uh, realms before, biotech being, being one of them. Obviously, cybersecurity is something that's playing out right now. China steals jobs from America every single day through the internet, and we're not investing nearly enough to stop them from doing that. And by the way, I don't think China signing some piece of 
paper and a trade deal is going to stop them from stealing our our military designs and our economic innovations. I mean, that's fundamental to how their economy works. It certainly hasn't stopped them before. They've signed lots of pieces of paper. <laughs> that's right. We've got to defend ourselves. I've asked this great bipartisan bill to stop the Chinese importation um, of fentanyl to America because Chinese fentanyl is killing a lot of Americans. On our right. Own. I remember this. And one of the amazing facts about this is we passed this bill to, to essentially criminalize the Chinese producers of, of this. But the reason we had to do that is because we already had an agreement in place that said China would not export fentanyl to the United States, but the agreement didn't work. Right. And there was some amazing statistic around, I might get the numbers slightly off, but basically for the first year that this agreement was in place, essentially a customs agreement, American customs officials stopped 1,290 shipments of Chinese fentanyl to America and Chinese customs agents stopped four. So in other words, they just weren't trying. Yeah, they're big help. Yeah, and all these things. So. so we can sign an agreement with China that says they're not going to steal our jobs through the internet. They're not going to enforce that. We have to enforce that. And that's why we have to invest a lot more in cybersecurity as well. So what's it going to take for us to check China in a way that will let them know that we mean business, that they really do need to stop stealing our intellectual property and they need to respect our ideals? Well, the first thing we have to do is show them a united front, come together as Democrats, Republicans, independents, and say, look, we're going to have our political debates. That's a hallmark of a democracy. But when it comes to protecting our values, standing up for our troops, defending our constitution, you're not going to see any daylight between Republicans and Democrats or anybody else here in Washington. We're all going to stand up for America. That's the most important thing we can do right now. And we'll still have great debates on the Armed Services Committee about exactly how to do that, exactly how to fund uh, this, that, or the other thing. There's a great debate playing out in the services now about how to evolve, especially under the Commandant's leadership in the Marine Corps. He's really challenging assumptions about how to best counter China. And we're going to have a debate about that. But when it comes to standing up to China, when it comes to supporting our troops on the front lines, there can be no debate that America will stand united. Well, that's I couldn't agree more. And I'm delighted to hear that uh, from you as an important member of the Congress and the Armed Services Committee. But you've been very generous with your time today. And we wish you great success at the NDAA because it's exactly that message that bill tends to send. So thank you for your time. Thank you. And thanks for this discussion. Congressman, really appreciate it today. This is enlightening for us. Really appreciate it. Andrew and Scott, thanks for doing this. Thanks for carrying on the debate. We need to have more of this in Washington. And policymakers like myself need to respond to debates like this by putting good policy into action. So thank you. Thanks for listening to The Reopening. If you like this episode, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find other podcasts from the Center for Strategic and International Studies at csis.org slash podcasts.